Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Ao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Hey, Kay. Good to have you on the show. Well, yeah, it's great to see you, uh, Jeremy and Andy. I am honored to be in this room. Yeah. Thanks for taking time during lunchtime. I know you got your dantan noodles right before this, so I appreciate you moving up your lunchtime. My pleasure. You're someone that a lot of people look up to in the travel world and across Asia. But for those who don't know you yet, how would you share your professional journey? Well, okay. So first, uh, let me quickly introduce myself. Uh, I've been in the uh, technology space for the last 20 years, primarily in, in a travel and technology, so travel tech. I co-founded the company called Venture Refabric in Tokyo back in 2001, and I am still running this company as a CEO at the same time. I am also running one of our businesses called uh, Trip 101 based out of Singapore, where I'm half-based as a CEO as well. Over the course of the last 20 years, so we have gone through many different corporate events, which includes IPO, buyout, and the, uh, a couple of our liquidity events, exit opportunities in the past. So I have a what are, are a few stories to share with you guys today? I'm excited to actually to chit chat with uh, with you, Jeremy, because we never actually had a time to talk uh, specifically about the about the certain topics for the uh, for the uh, for the certain amount of time. So I'm excited. So go all the way back to the beginning. What were you like? Where did you grow up? What was it like growing up as K Shibata? Sure. Yeah, I was uh, I was born and raised in Tokyo. I guess I probably call myself as a, one of those uh, sort of naive student in a big city, you know, like Tokyo. And I I got in the the private schools called Keio, and in Japan, and then went all the way up to from a junior high to college. It is kind of interesting. So throughout my 10 years at the school, I did, I feel like I, I did nothing but the skiing. So it's funny because, you know, I knew there was no way I could actually, I could make my life living by skiing. But, uh, you know, for some reason, I just loved skiing and I just kept on, kept on skiing for the, for the 10 years. Then and I joined the, uh, the blue chip company in Japan called Mitsubishi. Like pretty much many other my, my, my college friends, I I was wearing like a navy suits, the white shirts and, and the leather shoes, and then I basically started my career as a as kind of like salary man. I traded agricultural commodities back then, so that was kind of beginning of my my uh, my my career, which it sounds a little bit boring, but that's that's <laughs> that's how I started. Uh, as a business person. So. Yeah. What was it like, you know, so, you know, you were doing skiing and then you became a salary man. Was that, was that different? 
Were we different from other salary men back then? <laughs> Did you know that you're different from other salary men? Yeah, that's a that's a good that's a really good question, Jeremy. Because the uh, I was kind of looking back, and the the one thing I found myself a little bit different from other people at my college is the I a I want to be I want to actually kind of make a, some kind of global footprint. So I I was actually interested in in the uh, other countries. And B, I think is I always kind of wanted to do something differently. So as a result, I think is when I graduated, I decided to actually to to be on a trip to Canada. I was so much into the Nordic cross country skiing, so I knew a, a bunch of guys actually in Japanese national ski teams, and then one of them was actually uh, uh, gave me an opportunity to stay. At the one house in 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 the Calgary, Alberta, it was a great opportunity for me to be able to expose to the uh, different culture. So I ended up is you know staying in in Canada for like a few weeks and the uh, uh, supporting Japan national ski team and also participated the uh, our our ski marathon, which is fifty five kilometer long ski marathon, one of the one of the longest ski marathon races. In a word, I also had a chance to to meet this guy called Arsa Hala, who was a chairman of the uh, the Mitsubishi Corporation of Canada. And the, when I actually had a lunch with him, one thing actually he told me was, "Hey Kay, so you know Mitsubishi is a great company. So you you'll be you'll be you know you must be excited. You know you should actually you you be able to learn a lot, but at the same time you probably want to keep in your mind that." Uh, Perhaps uh, you know going to the business school, maybe the greater option. So that was kind of a beginning of the uh, period that uh, okay, I probably wanted to actually go to the business school in overseas. So it was it was one of the life probably changing moment I think. All right, so let's talk about that, right? So you know we both ended up at you know Harvard Business School for our MBA, but did you know that you wanted to apply to Harvard like? So you heard about business school, someone recommended you to go, and then you started doing it. I mean, you know, even back then and even now, like not a lot of people in Japan go for an MBA, right? It's, you know, so I'm just kind of curious about that. Yeah, so this guy, Arthur, actually are, are, or highly recommended me to actually go to the Harvard Business Schools. And then, you know, I, I knew some of my friends actually came back from Harvard Business School and then they highly talk about it. So I, I, I told myself like, hey, look, why don't I try it? And I ended up as actually applying only Harvard. <laughs> and and the, it was a, uh, it was actually kind of interesting time because, you know, there was, it was only the Harvard Business School that didn't require GMAT. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't even take a GMAT and I just applied only Harvard. And the, and the I got the mission letter very lucky. So it, it sounds a little bit like a joke, but that's that's exactly what happened. Of course, you know I I I, I try hard. I mean I I put a lot of efforts in, like like everyone else, maybe you know, including you, Jeremy. So uh, yeah, it was it was a lot. It was a lot. Is all about I think. <laughs> I love that. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, one shot, one application, right? Like a sniper compared to everybody else applying to so many schools. 
Did people find it weird that you're going for MBA? Like, I know obviously your boss was like, I don't know your boss, but you know, a mentor was supportive of it. But did your friends were like, what is this MBA? I mean, I guess people knew about Harvard, catching up some, you know, Japanese Harvard MBAs. And they were like, yeah, you know, it's still kind of weird because a lot of people feel like, you know, you should stay in Japan. And there are good schools that's as good as Harvard or better, you know, domestically from their perspective. So what, what was that like? Yeah. It was definitely not our ideal career path if you want to actually climb up on a corporate river, right? It's an opportunity to be kind of an alien <laughs> in a way, in a, in a traditional like a legacy, you know, the big companies like Mitsubishi in Japan. So I had a little tough time actually persuading uh, my bosses. And then I, I was lucky to be able to actually to get the uh, sponsorship, corporate sponsorship. They actually felt that, the, you know, when I, when I got back from the business school, I would probably uh, leave the company right away, which actually kind of didn't happen in a way. I'll, 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 I'll get into that in, in, in shortly, but, uh, you know, there was kind of idea that Ozo is like a big corporation. They actually don't see MBAs are not necessary. A lawyer workforce or you know uh, a long-term workforce that's probably fair to say so okay so contrary to what everybody wanted you to do <laughs> in japan you still went to do it right so what was it like going to harvard in boston what do you remember your first day your first week what was it like as a japanese person so it's a new country that's one but also it's a new school right the mba program right yeah, first few months was actually was a I would say bitch. <laughs> so it's a, yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the the, the lacking the experiences in in communicating communicating in English and everything else. I think it's you know moving into the new cities, especially overseas, is um, apparently the, the lot of hustles. But at the same time, it was super exciting because you know definitely a mind blowing when I actually. I still remember when I actually first uh, uh, got into the classroom and the whole conversation started and the uh, people actually introduced themselves and the, uh, uh, oh my God, the smart, bright, you know, the people from all over the world and then across the different places in, in the United States too. Oh my God, this is actually like, uh, you know, the, 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 the best classroom ever, right? So I felt like, uh, okay, so I might be in the wrong place. But, you know, we'll see how it goes. And then, you know, I, and then, then I started making friends, which is actually, which really helped me a lot too. First year, particularly like the first half of our, the first year was the so much things, so, so, so much things going on. And then I was just overwhelmed at the same time. So I was, uh, I was super excited. So. Was there like any moment where you were like, whoa, like life is so much bigger than Japan? Because that's what happened to me, right? At some point I was like, I mean. I did undergrad, obviously, in the States, but still it was a bit different because I think the MBA was very, like, intentionally, like, let's have everyone from around the world, right? So it felt, I don't know, I think Harvard was, as an MBA, felt like it was like, whoa, like, there's a lot of business all around the world. I don't know. Was there ever a moment like that for you? Or how did you feel about HBS in terms of the world? Well, I mean, HBS is also known for very competitive school. I believe there is still... Uh, the system go a uh, full scarf, right? So the under ten percent in in the grades actually basically fail, right? So it was kind of 
intense sort of a pressure every single time when I was at the at a classroom. And then in, in even like the, the local Americans, I think, because they got, they're really heavy under pressures. And then some of them is even didn't come back after the first semester because of pressure. So I, I felt like, oh my God, this is actually this story I, I actually uh, read in the book called Year One, I think, is really happening. And in the front of my eyes, I think, it, which really kind of gave me a moment that, that, wow, this is actually like under pressure like environment. So I was just kind of curious, were there any interesting classes that you took back then that you still remember? I know it's been quite a while, but I'm just wondering, any good professors or classes that you loved? Yeah, so so first of all, there's no question that my my two years at the Harbor Business School had completely changed my life, right? I would definitely like to mention that the, the one of the highlights, this brand new course back then I took called Managing Cyberspace. What an interesting name, right? So the Managing Cyberspace was actually uh, taught by this professor named uh, Jeffrey Lapo. I don't think he's actually, he's no longer with the Harvard Business School. But anyway, so it is a course about uh, learning dot-com companies. So specializing in, 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 in internet companies from the Amazon to eBay to Netscape. And then the, uh, that, that, that course has had completely kind of blown away, I think. So it definitely kind of inspired me as a future tech entrepreneur. Just to give you a little bit more context, so 96 to 98, that's when I was actually in business school. So we are basically in the middle of a sort of red hot internet boom, right? It was everything happening in the United States, right? You probably can't believe this story. So I remember that Jeff Bezos was even coming to, coming to our classroom. You know, not the not the those like that that, that big uh, student hall, regular classroom in in Old Bridge. You know, he was actually sitting on the sky deck the entire time, hearing our discussion on how Amazon uh, could beat the uh, uh, the Barnes and Noble, and he ended up is actually joining our debates, and then he stays through the end of the class. My God, right? It was, a, it was a crazy time. What was it like? Uh, I mean, at the time, what was he like? Well, I mean, so it, it was, I, I still clearly remember when the, prof- you know, when, when the uh, Jeffrey Layport actually introduced the uh, Jeff Bezos at the beginning of a class. So it was like an earthquake. So he was, he, back then, he was already big. But he was not, of course, he was not this big. You remember HBS always kind of uh, hand out the uh, uh, the case B or case B, whatever it is, right? The subsequent cases. And that classroom for the Amazon case, I think it's uh, the, the Jeff Rayport actually handed out the uh, case B or C, whatever, I, I forgot. It was the like latest statistics in business records and whatsoever in that, right? The supplemental case and the uh, Jeff actually talks all the things about that. It was it was crazy. So you got to meet Jeff Bezos. He was a protagonist in the case, right? So I know what it's like. And you, like you said, they're, they're big deals, but they're not big, big deals, right? I mean, 
he was like what a millionaire back then yeah you could say so yeah yeah then so so you know millionaires there's lots of millionaires walking around here <laughs> hbs right every week every day every hour there's a millionaire walking in on campus to talk to to a student right about a or b or c right so lots of billionaires you know, obviously, you must have thought about this ever since then because he became a billionaire, right? You know, which uh, a lot less, you know. So I'm just wondering when you looked at Jeff Bezos, was there anything special about him back then? Or you're like, no, he was just like all the other, you know, Harvard Business School protagonists uh, walking into a classroom back then? Well, that's a great question, R. Jeremy, because the back then, I, the only things I remember about him was actually, basically, he was, a, he was very humble. He listened very carefully. When the moment actually he opened his mouth and then started talking something, and then it was a, it was a, it was a profound. He was not the type of person like who kind of enthusiastically talk everything. Not like uh, Steve Ballmer, right? I also remember Steve Ballmer. I saw his presentations uh, uh, in Tokyo, right? Uh, probably ten years ago. Or so he was a very different type of, type of readers. And then, and then, you know, that Jeff Bezos was totally opposite. So that's all, all I remember. Yeah, that's definitely true. Okay, so there you are. You get, you get to see these billionaires walk in and potential billionaires walk in. You're at managing, um, you know, cyberspace, which is, like you said. <laughs> well, what a name, right? So what, what a name, name right? It's like, yeah. yeah. I remember as a kid, I was all like, you know, you know, you read those books and everyone's like, oh, cyberspace, there'll be virtual reality. There will be, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and right now, I think it's all about the, probably the virtual reality. So, yeah, right. Yeah. I'm mean, just kind of curious. I mean, you know, 1996 to 1998, that's also when the Asian financial crisis was happening, right? Do you have any memories about that happening while you were a student? I mean, you're lucky, right? Because you were in school and not working. I'm just kind of wondering if it, you saw that happening. Right, that's a good point. I don't remember well. So uh, perhaps, uh, you know, with South Korea actually going through the, uh, the, uh, the currency crisis back then? Yeah, a little bit. There was uh, lots of different countries that were just like... Yeah, I, I, I think it's the... Japan wasn't really affected, but definitely the, you know, it was happening in Asia. Big Asia. Right, right. Well, I... The, the only thing I remember was actually around the uh, time when I graduated, I think uh, uh, some, uh, some Korean students actually have a tough time because, you know, they, they, they are not able to actually afford to, to stay in the U.S. So I think it's, that's the only things I remember, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's what... Oh, too busy, you know, studying at MSC, working out at the shad hole, I think, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at the time, it was lucky, right? Because Japan was much less affected. And South Korea was very impacted. I think, I think Indonesia and Thailand, you know, my father was impacted by it. So because he was in business, it was a tough time. Yeah, and then, okay, so you go to HBS, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to go back, right? <laughs> Is that what happened? <laughs> or were you like, I'm going to go back for a while, and then I'm going to do something else? Yeah, what happened to me after graduation was the... Uh... You know, since I got a corporate sponsorship from Mitsubishi, so I felt kind of obligated to go back to Mitsubishi and then, you know, at, at least to work for a bit. And the, yeah, that's what I did. 
interesting things happened to me was after a while when I went back to Tokyo, so I got one phone call from this guy, also an HBS graduate, and then who was working for Mitsubishi. He, he was actually like uh, uh, five or six years above me. Guy named Takni Nami. He's currently a CEO of Suntory. So he basically told me that, hey, Kay, so um, I have a quite interesting project within a Mitsubishi. Uh, can you help me? And then I said, yeah, that sounds good. Um, but at, at the same time, so I have my own business plan. I started writing. So, but anyway, so yeah, just let me know what's, what's the project. And then he actually, he sent me the huge, you know, the packet of documents. And that is about that M&A project of the convenience store chain called Lawson. Those of you guys actually who actually had a chance to actually come to Japan, I think you see us so many convenience stores. And then Lawson is actually one of the, uh, one of the, you know, the uh, top uh, convenience store chains. So I ended up is actually working with him for a year and a half. And the uh, uh, Mitsubishi ended up is actually acquiring uh, a Lawson at the end. But at the same time, so I actually kept writing my business plan, and then I couldn't really forget about starting my own business. Then over the course of time, I also had a, a chance to actually meet my, uh, my current co-founder. His name is also Shibata, the same last name, just by coincidence. And Sludi uh, are our HBS friend. So I told uh, Takmi Nami, you know, look, you know, this project is fun, but at the same time, I wanted to actually start my own business. I'm ready to go. And then what he actually told me was, okay, look, you know, I, I know, you know, you want to actually start your own business. And the, but at the same time, Mitsubishi is also looking for the new opportunity in, in a tech, uh, you know, uh, technology space. So why don't I talk to the Mitsubishi's, the top management people? And then actually that, that actually went well. And then they, they ended up saying, so, Kay, I know you, you know, you've been working hard for our Lawson M&A project. You're pretty good. Why don't, I, why don't we actually just to give you a couple million dollars to start the, your business? So it was kind of dot connected, right? The, the, the Mitsubishi said, okay, so we want to invest you guys. I found the uh, uh, my co-founder, so that was kind of a very beginning of the uh, the venture republic Inc. that we ended up with co-founding in in two thousand one. Wow, that's that's actually surprising, right? Because and I had no idea, you know, that you were kicked off by. Mitsubishi, right, in terms of your capital, which, of course, I think kind of makes sense because back then there wasn't a lot of venture capital either, right? So, uh, yeah, so that makes a lot of sense when you say it out loud. So what was it like? I mean, because, you know, at a time you were a founder, did you call yourself a founder? Like, was there even a term called founder? I mean, at, at that time and in Japan, or did you call yourself like CEO or what did you call yourself? Yeah, well, that's only getting into this, uh, this interesting story, you know, around that. So, okay. So uh, uh, just to give you another context, back in the days, like the, the 2000, year 2000 was an interesting year, right? The, 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 the bubble of the internet boom 
was was ended up as bursting, right? So the 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 crazy time is over. So basically, when I actually got the promise from Mitsubishi, market was already you know was dead. So we ended up with some finding another investor who is the the local venture capital, which is partially owned by the Mitsubishi, by the way. Basically, the two investors said, okay, the market is actually is dead, but we are still willing to invest you guys. And then the, the, the size of capital was actually 4 million, which is great to start. It's a great amount to start. But they said, we're not going to give you any valuation. So basically the par, par valuation. And the boss, Kenichi, and myself, they don't have a much capital, right? Because, you know, we, we, we didn't have any liquidity events whatsoever. We basically, we, we are, we're like a fresh out of our business school. So it was the ultimate choice, right? Whether we're going to take the $4 million to start, but the equity ownership was the less than 1%. Or, you know, we leave. And then, they, then the Kenichi and I basically talking like, hey, what are we going to do? Well, are we going gonna to actually wait for the next chance? Or are we going to actually start with no ownership? <laughs> so, and then boss of us basically saying that, you know, let's, let's do it. Because, you know, if we fail, I think probably the McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or someone's probably going to uh, offer us a job. So, you know, it, it, it is essentially a risk-free. And maybe, you know, I can even go back to Mitsubishi, right? So the, the, that was actually probably the best time for us to actually start the business, even though our ownership was just like really nothing. Wow, I had no idea. What was it like making that choice? Because, you know, now, of course, it's very standardized, right? Like, you get $3 million and you give up 20%, right? You know, but did you, did you know that it was, I mean, was it market? Was it different? Did you, it was a market. It was a market. It was a market. So it was a market term. So you felt it was normal, but you didn't know whether you should do it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, a lot of our entrepreneurs actually gave up starting, right? Because, you know, there's no variation, but we actually took a chance because the time is money, right? And then also again, so the it's a it's a risk to us. I think it's, it looks like a risk free, a risk free environment. I strongly feel that that you know if I were back then, right, and uh, I would probably did the same choice. And then you know, um, for anyone you know, with especially a recent graduate or fresh out of you know the business school, it, it's the best time to start the business. I think. Yeah. So what was it like? So you started, was it like uh, you were working out of an office? What was it like? What was the first few days like, you know, you t- you'd signed a check, you know, and then you started working, I guess. What was it like? So when we started a business back in 2001, first of all, there's no, not even like a broadband internet in Japan. So, i.e., it's reasonable to say that there's almost no one actually who the idea staff on online or who book the uh, or the flights online or so you know there's only a handful number of people who does e-commerce so means i think it's the infrastructure was not there and then we knew that we have to wait for quite some time until the uh, you know the people actually started actually doing online shopping or you know 
the online travel booking, whatever. So our strategy back then was the uh, we, we really wanted to start the business with a low cost. So the first things we did was the uh, to to get a subred of office space from the, the venture capital company. Soon after that, uh, the, this, the VCs was basically downsizing. So we ended up is actually getting all the furnitures actually almost for nothing. <laughs> and the, uh, then and we, we found the, uh, the another office space, which was the used by the one of the subsidiary of the Mitsubishi. And then we, we hire very carefully. We had a strategy back then in which, you know, we, we basically, we search on a web to find the, uh, the primary the bloggers. The bloggers actually, who talks about the, uh, the area of business, let's say online shopping or, you know, the, how to buy the computers online or so, or how to actually book the uh, flights online or something. So we, we started actually, you know, kind of making a cold call to them over the internet and say, hey, do you want to actually uh, uh, come stop by our office and want to chat? And they, uh, so we ended up actually talking with, with so many bloggers or some engineers actually, but who actually kind of express their opinions on the on internet. And, the, uh, um, and then we, we hired those people and uh, without paying any money to the uh, you know, sort of recruiting agencies or websites. What's it like? I mean, you know, like, you know, you're, were there other people taking travel online? Because you said there's no broadband. Did you feel weird to be like, I guess like, did you feel like a crazy person saying like, oh, travel will be online and, and then in Asia, like people are doing it in the US or something like that. Did you feel like a crazy person saying that? Or I was just kind of curious. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in, I think it's in, at least in Asia, Japan, I think it's back then, a lot of people actually probably felt the same way. But at the same time, I, we closely monitor what's happening in the United States, right? And the, there was already, like, uh, Expedia was already out there, like, Traveler Cities was out there, like, for example. I mean, there are so many, like, a widget online, you know, uh, uh, travel agency businesses started making money. So we, we definitely believe that the, uh, the market was definitely going to be available in Asia, including Japan. So t- tell us about your early days, right? So you, you know, you're buying all this furniture for free from the VC that funded you, right? And then, uh, you know, that's, that's a funny. So they gave you money and furniture. So that's good. The value-added service. Oh, every night there we go. It's like, it's like value-added VC. There we go. And... What's interesting is obviously, you know, you're there as a founder. Was there a moment where you were like, oh, this is starting to work? Like, maybe this isn't a crazy idea. Like, the numbers are going up or like, you know, customers are trying to buy. Was there like moments there? Yeah, yeah. There are, there are a couple moments I remember clearly. So one is actually the uh, sort of like an early adoption of the broadband internet, which was uh, triggered by the, uh, you know, SoftBank. So the SoftBank actually uh, started distributing a free broadband modem uh, routers at every single station in Japan for free. <laughs> a, and then soon after that, I think, is, you know, we started seeing a lot of uh, good tractions on, on the traffic. And that was actually the first moment. And the second moment was the 
the search engine marketing. I clearly remember I was actually the first guy in, in, in our team who started bidding on a Google AdWords. I was doing a Google AdWords for like a, almost a year. Even I was a CEO and everything. So the, uh, it was a fun time. I think it's whenever actually I added that new keywords to bid and then, you know, and then our traffic actually just went up and then went up and then, you know, we, we just basically kept counting the money. <laughs> were you like a weirdo doing Google ads? <laughs> Sounds like it, right? Like, like, were you explaining to people like, wow, do you know you can use Google and you can use ads? Like, <laughs> is that what happened? <laughs> like. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I was definitely one of those, uh, one of those like our marketing NARS back then. So, I mean, you know, it was it's interesting, right? Because now everybody's like, "Wow, Google Ads!" You know, if you don't do it, you know, you know, I mean, there's no way you, you can't do those ads, right? Yeah, and then also the SEO too. SEO back then was, you know, it was like a, our our it was a total like black box, right? So the yeah, a lot of people actually didn't know anything about the SEOs. You know, we are one of the first companies, I think, uh, uh, in a space who started actually working hard on SEOs. And that was also the fun time. So, okay, so you're starting to feel some, you're starting to feel some good moments. And then was that moment where you're like, oh, we're starting to scale? Like, you know, like there's a bit of a hockey stick or transition, right? Like, like things start to break. You start to hire a lot of folks. Like, what was that like? I think it's year three, you know, we started actually seeing the hockey stick clearly, you know, and by the way, so the first uh, two, three, two, three years was like, are miserable, right? So even though we knew market was not ready and, you know, we explained to the uh, two investors, but the investors always bitch, bitches us, right? You know, what are you guys doing? You know, you guys are actually making this much amount of money. I think this is like, amount of sales that uh, some hawker centers actually is generating or something, right? So it was a, a, it was a tough time, by the way. So the, but after that, I think it's a, we quickly started seeing the growth and the, the next uh, probably four years, we had a continuous growth, like, right? uh, you know, a 2X, 3X, I don't remember quite well, but uh, I mean, every year, so we had a we had a uh, we had a double or triple digit growth, and then even before we actually went to public, I think it's we still so like thirty uh, to fifty percent of growth uh, year on year. Yeah. Wow, was it like crazy? Like, did you have to like hire people suddenly, or like you scramble or something like that? Yeah, yeah. So hiring was actually definitely was a headache because the you know especially back then. There are not many uh, engineering talents uh, or web designers and those people. And the, what, what we particularly actually went through in, in terms of uh, you know, the tough times was a finding, to be honest, with the finding accounting and then the finance people or admin people. So we had a really tough time. So it, it took us like, right, more than a few years. To, to build the, uh, like the decent team. So let me actually explain a little bit on why, why that happened. Because we hire so many people who have a really, have a huge interest in our business, right? Like, remember the example I, I, I gave you, like when we actually first hired people, when 
we basically made a cold call, right, to the uh, to the bloggers and and and, and engineers actually who who had a big interest in in our space. So those people actually stick around, but uh, you know the people in admin, accounting, you know, finance, they don't care much about <laughs> our business. So uh, for young company, especially you know back then when the category of tech entrepreneurship was not really established. I think the, you know, those people just uh, saw us the, one of those like, a, you know, like a small medium enterprise, right? So yeah, that was exactly what happened to us. Wow, any funny stories from that time? Do you remember any funny stories? Like, I don't know. Oh yeah, so uh, I mean, speaking of this, uh, you know, this, uh, this hustle to find the good admin people, so I, we hired one uh, uh, accounting guy who was in accounting department. You know, he he was basically bullied by the uh, the other team members. If who was a female accountant who was actually who was actually doing great job, but uh, you know she had a really high pride, and then she uh, kind of ended up as bullying a little bit. <laughs> he was kind of crying and everything, and then we we always kind of felt like oh. Okay, so I don't think you know he can actually he could actually uh, keep working for us. So and then and on one morning, there was a one there's a one one guest actually showed up in our office, who was the mother of this uh, you know male accounting team members. Kenichi and I ended up is actually meeting his mom, and then his mom started saying, like, "I wanted to actually let him resign." Right, it was kind of bizarre, but that's exactly what happened. Like, can... <laughs> well, anyway, so there's a lot, a lot of a lot of interesting story like that. But uh, it's the it's like uh, our it's the I would say you know you know it's a, it's a it's a small team is a lot of drama, right? <laughs> I totally understand. Uh, I there's a lot of drama. Uh, I uh, when I was building my startup in the early days. What's interesting is that, you know, you keep going, right? You know, you're building at some point you're in Japan and then you're like, okay, Singapore, right? <laughs> so, so how did that transition happen? Yeah. So, okay. We prepare for like a kind of a long story because, you know, this is actually kind of most of probably interesting story for everyone because, you know, remember when we started the business with less than 1% of ownership, right? So over the course of uh, seven, eight years, two investors, especially VCs, kept pushing us to, uh, to go to public, right? Kenichi and I, we didn't have any control over the company, right? So the, even though we actually wanted to actually focus more on the growth, at the same time, in the year of 2007, Six seven, I think it's the uh, the market condition in Japan was not great, and that's because the a I think it's the uh, you know there was no great macroeconomics like uh, abenomics whatever it is uh, was actually in Japan, and then also there was a corporate scandal by the uh, company called Live Door. Some of you guys probably remember Live Door is a, is a it was a startup actually who. Create a lot of buzz, and the uh, ended up is actually being, you know, uh, criminal charges and everything. So it was the 
So the, the, the market actually clearly didn't like us as a tech entrepreneurs and, and in startups. So it wasn't a great environment for us to, to go to public and renew it, but you know, we had no control over it. So they, they basically did the VCs and investors actually push us very hard to jump into the public market. But that was actually when it exactly happened back in 2008, August 7th. We made an IPO, okay? And then one month later, uh, on August 15th, Demon Shock, right? At the IPO event, of course, you know, Kenichi and I was not able to sell even a single share because, you know, we didn't have any ownership almost. So zero capital gains for the, for the founders. And then the 90% still owned by the two investors when, when we actually went to public. In the Lehman shock. And in the following year, which is 2009, in Japan, there was the uh, chicken flu hit the nations, and then the uh, people stopped traveling. And then the whole thing happened our stock price has actually totally plunged. So it was, it was a really tough time. And the VC. Ended up saying, so we want to actually sell the uh, all the shares, which is 40, 45%. So they actually started selling the uh, stocks and in the market, in the stock exchange. So the stock price even went down farther. Wow. Okay. So that, so how did you feel about that? I mean, you must, you must have sucked. <laughs> totally sucked. Yeah. It was, uh, uh, yeah. It was actually disaster, right? Then the it, it, this is not the end of the story because the you know the next year, two thousand nine, Mitsubishi also said they wanted to sell all their holdings forty five percent. So first of all, so the the VC shares are partially absorbed by the uh, public market, and then the but of course it wasn't enough liquidity then. So as a company we bought back all the shares from them with all the cash reserve we actually accumulated you know over the course of rest that are uh, five or six years or so and then then and now the mitsubishi said they want to actually sell they they all the stock and by the way as a, as a block of shares means we have to find another shareholder to replace them so i i basically for Almost a year, I scrambled to find the uh, investor to actually to to suck it up. Okay, wow. So okay, so you're traveling to find the investors. I guess you were building up your own equity percentage during this time as well, or you were like, oh, you know, it's too tough. I'm just wondering. No, because first of all, I think that so that zero capital gain for the founders at the IPO, right? So we had a no fund to support. The only way we could actually increase our ownership was actually through the stock options. So uh, we started actually less than 1% of uh, ownership. And then the, uh, at the time of IPO, so we had a slightly less than 10%. That actually went through the uh, stock options. Then I ended up with actually finding one investor, which is the, the Lawson, the convenience store chains. Remember? <laughs> so, no way. No way. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. Yeah, right? 
It was so funny. So in their strategy map, so they they wanted to do something more on the uh, uh, online, you know, on top of offline business. So they're 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 by far the biggest uh, offline retailers, one of the biggest offline retailers. So they are big on offline, but uh, they want to do something online too. So we basically offered them to actually help. And then of course, and then I I knew the CEO of Lawson personally, which actually helped me. You know, through HBS connections and the Mitsubishi connection. So, another, you know, dot connector. So, luckily, uh, Lawson sucked up Mitsubishi's, uh, uh, the holdings. Then, the uh, first word in 2012, Kenichi and I actually agree upon the idea of the, uh, the management buyout uh, with Lawson. We did the uh, LVL, basically. So, we, we took the, uh, $22 million LVO loan from the commercial bank. And then the, uh, the buyout the companies and then took the company back to private. Wow. That must have been, that must not, that was not easy. I mean, I don't think, okay, that's, well, I know it's not, it's difficult. I don't think everybody would understand it's so difficult, but that's a big one, right? To take the LBO. That's a very tough thing to re-engineer, to engineer actually. Yeah, it was a so. I mean, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that not so many uh, tech entrepreneurs actually uh, went through the uh, you know uh, leverage buyout, buyout, right? So it was a, it was a great experience in a way. <laughs> so, and the by the way, so this whole corporate events, right? Series of corporate events uh, uh, happened in happened in the in the in the mere like three years or four years. My finance professor at the HBS. Actually, they found uh, found our company, you know, and uh, this story, and then they he ended up deciding a case. <laughs> there's there's what else? Must have been a fun case, you know. It's like a lot of twists and turns, right? You know. Yeah, yeah, totally. So and the, but anyway, so the LVO was the was a very unique experience because you know, first of all, I think it's when we actually learn at the HBS, it's the, it's a game. The based on the conflicts of interest, right? The management buyout, especially. So, which is a bit different, right? Because I think a lot of the newer generation founders, they're doing like three years of one startup, you know, I'm talking about, right? Seven years, 10 years max, right? And now you're at 20, right? So, I'm just, do you feel that? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, uh, Jeremy. I, I was just like, I was thinking about that too. But uh, in a way, all the story I told you, can be separated into the different pieces too, right? A lot of different corporate events. And we had a, at one point, we had like an e commerce business. We had a, uh, of course, you know, we are still running a, a, a big uh, a tribal business in Japan. But, you know, we had a, we have Trip 101. Also, you know, we had, a, we had a major investment in South Korea too. So to me, in a way, this is actually my journey as the uh, sort of serial entrepreneur. But, you know, it's just like the same corporate kind of entity there, like Venture Evaric maybe, right? But, uh, I mean, over the course of like 20 years or so, I never actually felt like, you know, I, I was actually kind of belonging to one thing and then we're doing only one thing. Does it make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Basically, you, you got to do different opportunities. You got to be a founder again in, in many ways at different stages in the same company. It was another game. Actually, we 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 chose was the in in two thousand eighteen, 
so Kenichi and I decided to actually sell the part of our shares to Line, you know, the messaging app. That's another recruit event. And then, you know, that actually gave us an opportunity to actually build the business on a Line app in Japan. But now I think so we have like a 20, some 22 million followers, or Line friends, whatever you want to call on a line app which is actually gave us another sort of like uh, asset i i saw it is another chapter okay i think i want to I'm gonna wrap things up here my last question i have for you is you know if you could go back in time all the way to yourself like graduating from harvard business school you know that was you know over you know 20 over years ago what advice would you give yourself take even more risk I was actually telling you how I felt about the opportunity for the MBA graduates, right? You know, I, it's, it's the best time to start the business, I think. And then I, I can't emphasize it more. Means, you know, if I go back there and, and if I actually in a position to do something new and then I will even take a bigger risk, I'll be even more ambitious and I'll be, I will even take more risk. I think. Awesome. I love it. Take big, even bigger risks. That's, I love it so much. Because, you know, you, you, you're not going to, you're not going to die, right? You know, you're not going to die. You know, you're not going to be like, a, you know, yeah, you can actually survive. There's nothing, you have nothing to lose, right? So this is my, my biggest message for the, uh, for the, all the uh, audience or young people, you know, who thinking about like getting an MBA or who actually just got the MBAs or, you know, Whatever it is, I think it's, it's, it's you know, you, you have like golden opportunity upon you, right? So <laughs> Awesome. I, I love it so much. I think that's, uh, I think you're right. I, I think when I look back at myself, I'm like, yeah, I could take an even more risk, <laughs> you know, uh, at every stage, right? Because it's, because at the worst case, in a, you know, it's asymmetric, right? At the best case, you win. And in the worst case, you learn. And then like your founder friend said, McKinsey will have a job for you, right? <laughs> That's the worst case, right? If you take the risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kay. I really appreciate it for you taking your time. My pleasure. Yeah, it was a fun.